When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello, writers, excavators, listeners, and channelers. I'm Grant Faulkner, still exhausted by a very eventful NaNoWriMo, and I'm here with my co-host, Brooke Warner, who also also did NaNoWriMo. And Brooke, how did the month go for you? You know, Grant, only thank you to my accountability group. Um, I wrote twice a week. Uh-huh. <laughs> I got more done than I did the previous month and clocked over uh, just over 20,000 words. But given all the things that are going on in my life right now, I'm actually pretty pleased with that number. So all good for me. Uh, And how about you? How did your time go? I know you had a really, really busy month. So how was that word count? Yeah. Well, first, I'm impressed by your 20,000 words, Uh, even though the goal's 50,000. You know, 20,000 is huge. It's hard to write 20,000 words. So, you know, (laughs) feel very good about that. I also had a tough month in terms of overall word count. And I I didn't come anywhere close to 50,000 words. I was just, you know, too, too busy. And sometimes the way that's the way it is, you know, I think sometimes people expect me to win every year uh, because I'm the the executive director. But uh, yeah, my life can uh, put up some obstacles as well. So I didn't quite make it. But I did very early on decide to focus on another goal. And that was just showing up every day and writing something. So I squeezed in, you know, maybe 10 or 20 minutes a day at minimum. And I ended up writing 14,000 words. And it was, you know, those words weren't effortless. You know, they weren't easy necessarily. But it was interesting to me how you can make a big thing out of just showing up every day in small ways. I mean, if I do the math on this, if I keep writing at this pace, then in in five months, I'll have 70,000 words, which is the length of a standard novel. Yeah. And you know what? That's really impressive. And it speaks to something we've talked about, or we've said, you know, Toni Morrison uh, wrote in the cracks and the crevices, right? Just these little moments on the bus or the train or in the wee hours when her kids were sleeping. And I think we get so caught up in this belief that we have to give ourselves long stretches of dedicated focused time. But I can't believe how much I get done when I just write for one hour, sometimes mm-hmm. even less. It's a lot. And you can focus and get right into it in that time. So it is about sitting down and doing that hour or that five minutes or that 10 minutes. So good job, Grant. Thank you. Well, NaNoWriMo is on my mind, not just because I, you know, still need to soak in a jacuzzi for a few days or a few weeks to recover, but, um, (laughs) you know, because NaNoWriMo is how I discovered today's featured guest, Jamila Minix, uh, who wrote a novel during NaNoWriMo. And then even though that novel didn't get published, uh, she says it's still in a drawer. It led to her debut novel, Moonrise Over New Jessup. 
And she said she learned the tools to write Moon, Moonrise Over New Jessup during that first NaNoWriMo novel. And I think that that's a lesson for first-time novelists. Your first novel tends not to be the novel you get published, but don't view any of your work as a, as a waste of time because you're learning from each story and hopefully enjoying writing each story too. You don't always have to go for publication. Now, one thing that Moonrise Over New Jessup made me think about was the role of fiction in telling us a, a necessary and maybe even a higher truth. And I say this, Brooke, because... The trend, especially in education for the last couple of decades, and perhaps the trend in publishing too, I don't know, but it's been to to privilege nonfiction over fiction, uh, both in reading and writing instruction. And I think I think there's an idea that nonfiction holds facts and fiction holds fantasy, and facts are more important than fantasy to like do things like earn a living and understand this world and navigate it. And I don't like to rank genres. And I love to read and write nonfiction, but I think it's important to note that there are different kinds of truth in the world. And the truth fiction can impart is no less important just because it didn't necessarily really happen. You know, it's it's the job of a novelist to tell emotional truths. And, you know, the best way to do that is rarely by relaying facts and figures or repeating events just as they happened. Although in the case of Moonrise, I think most readers will learn about black lives in the 50s in surprising and new ways. So it's So it's a novel that does both. But I think uh, fiction is uniquely suited to a different kind of truth-telling because humans, you know, we we have storytelling baked into our DNA, literally, and that's how we make meaning in the world, through our stories. So so sometimes it's the fictional story that carries the higher truth, the truth that facts can't impart. And in fact, when we want someone to truly understand something, I think if, if we turn it into a story, it works better. You know, we're uncovering what it means to be human, which goes beyond facts, and then serving it back to our readers. Yeah, that has uh, been on my radar, actually, because I've seen with my almost 13-year-old who's in seventh grade uh, that a lot of the reading he does for school is nonfiction. Uh, And I remember when I was in elementary and middle school, there was more fiction. I mean, that's super anecdotal, but I I do notice it. Uh, And I recently read that fiction promotes critical thinking as well as empathy. I think we know that to be true. I think that's true for memoir as well. Um, But it's important for kids kids and adults, of course, uh, to be emotionally transported by a story. You know, the more that happens, the more we're influenced by the story because we're in it. And in the memoir classes that I teach with Linda Joy, um, we always share this little tidbit from Mary Carr, who says that you want to zip the reader up in your skin. And I just, I've always loved that visual. uh, Because then if you think about it from a reader's perspective, when you're engrossed in a book, then you're the one who's being zipped in and you get to walk around in the world in that other person's perspective. Uh, And that's certainly true for fictional characters as well. And I think that's the power of these narratives. So I'm totally with you in terms of how fiction can be transformative in this way. You know, fiction can transport you also into like several different points of view in a single novel or into antagonists' points of view, which I actually think is something to consider and maybe is not an unimportant aspect of uh, fiction. And of course, stories are essential for understanding the world and our place in it. Uh, And, you know, and finally, I just wanted to say this thing um, I came across from Neil Gaiman. He uses the story of Little Red Riding Hood as an example of what we're talking about. Like you can tell a child the story of Little Red Riding Hood, he says. uh, And one of the key takeaways of that story is that there are people out there who may not mean you well and who are best to avoid. 
And you could read a child by contrast, all sorts of statistics or articles in the newspaper tell them, you know, be careful. But something like Little Red Riding Hood, which is, you know, a, an allegory, basically, is just going to be much more memorable and more meaningful. And, I, you know, that's obviously the magic of stories and why they're so everlasting in our culture and our, our human history. Yeah, Brooke, that reminds me of a, of a quote that I've heard uh, Gaiman speak about from G.K. Chesterton, who said, fairy tales aren't true. Fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be defeated. And if you think about that, he means that, you know, they tell us the emotions of, of the characters and the community at work and like slaying a dragon or working with a dragon, whatever happens in the story. And, you know, Moonrise Over New Jessup, it's not a book about fairy tales, of course, but it is about a type of dragon, racism. You know, the novel is about a fictional town in 1957, New Jessup, which has existed independent of the white people on the other side of the woods for nearly 60 years. And the community maintains that self-reliance and independence rather than integration are the path to black social, political, and economic empowerment. And those ideas are put to the test when the main character, Alice, falls in love with New Jessup and Raymond Campbell, a town grandson who is, you know, secretly courted a national civil rights organization in the town. So when I first read this novel, I thought a lot about the difference between a purely historical nonfiction approach and a fictional approach to this story. And it might just be my style of reading, my disposition, but the story made me care all the more about the history because of the fictional story. Grant, I just want to acknowledge you for hanging in there because listeners, you can tell he's struggling with a bit of a cold today. So um, we, we've got this. We're in the home stretch. Um, but it's interesting to say, you know, that um, what fiction says about the power of metaphor and images to engage our imaginations, right? Like sometimes nonfiction can be a bit didactic or preachy. But if you read a story, you're getting that same information, but then it's engaging you in ways that are more nuanced and you Usually that help you see things differently than you might otherwise in nonfiction, which is, you know, obviously what the plug for fiction is. Uh, and then our guest today, Jamila, and she's incredible with her use of language and the layers behind the language. Uh, and because she was creating the words, she infused them with layers of history. Um, and in one interview, she said these words, uh, I quote, our language reflects our history, our culture, our trophies, our scars, and our dopeness. I write to preserve our language because it is one way that we can really connect our past to our present. Alice, her protagonist, doesn't just fall out of the sky and land in New Jessup. She was raised by loving parents who did the best they could for her and Rosie. Her family taught her hard lessons, sacrificed for her, loved her, teased her, gave her a strong foundation for becoming the woman she becomes. Every word she utters reminds us of the experience and intelligence she gleaned about the world well before she ever stepped in town. Alice brings herself to New Jessup. Her words are the story of her. I just love that so much. And, and she's going to speak much more about Alice and uh, her story in our interview, which is just, I feel like we're lucky to have her because she's on the precipice of all of these awards and getting a lot of attention for this book. So an exciting guest for us today, Grant. Definitely. And uh, what you re just read, I think it illustrates what I was getting at, you know, the, the ineffable truths of fiction. Sometimes you can't even name those truths. You just you just feel them. And I think we, we underestimate that part of the reading experience sometimes, or it, or, or it isn't valued as much as it should be, that a, that a big part of understanding goes beyond language, you know, to the ineffable nature of feeling. And fiction is often called the lie that tells the truth. And I suppose there's some truth to that. 
The fiction is also a search for truth, and that truth shows up in the layers of language that Jamila uh, speaks about here. But before we go, Jamila, uh, any thoughts about how this also applies to memoir, Brooke? Well, I think the commonality here is that memoir also allows for emotional truths. Good memoir is also poetic and full of imagery and powerful language. And good memoir, in fact, should read like fiction. And I think it's a compliment to the genre when people make that observation about memoir, because they're basically saying that it reads well you know, like a story should. And memoirists also have to weave essential truths and use their own life story to create a context and support their readers to think about all of our places in a broader society. Um, so I think the reason there's so much synergy between fiction and memoir is that they really stem from the same place. And that is that place of starting with a core truth. Totally agree, which is why if it were up to me, I might mix memoir and fiction up in a bookstore and just call them <laughs> all stories. You know, a good story that connects us to the world is what we're after in the end. And I, I love the idea of learning about the facts of the world through a life experience. So we'll find out uh, more in just a minute when we talk with Jimmy Lam. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back, everybody. Jamila Minnick's debut novel, Moonrise Over New Jessup, won the 2021 Penn Bellwether Prize for Socially Engaged Fiction. And it's a finalist for the 2023 Center for Fiction First Novel Prize, and it was longlisted for the 2023 Crook's Corner Book Prize. Her short stories and essays are published or forthcoming in Plowshares, The Sun, Craft, Catapult, Blackbird, The Right Launch, and elsewhere. Jamila's work has been supported by the Sewanee Writers Conference and the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, and she is also a graduate of the University of Michigan, the Howard University School of Law, and the Georgetown University Law Center. She lives in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Jamila. Well, thank you. Thank you for that warm welcome. Absolutely. I'm really excited to talk to you today for a number of reasons, but but first... I initially became acquainted with you when I heard that you'd done NaNoWriMo. And while Moonrise Over New Jessup wasn't written during NaNoWriMo, you told me that NaNoWriMo had taught you several important things about being a writer. And so I was wondering if you can tell listeners what you learned from that first experience writing a novel. Oh, of course. And, you know, this is such an honor. So thank you so much for having me. If you would have asked me in 2019 when I decided to do NaNoWriMo, whether I'd be sitting here right now, I would have been like, mm, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but that first, my first novel, so I had written a bunch of, not a bunch, but I'd written some short fiction and I wanted to give myself the challenge of writing something a little longer. And so NaNoWriMo came up in 2019, which was the perfect opportunity for me to sort of test my long form writing chops, I guess. 
um, as you sort of mentioned, I'd practiced law for a while. You know, I'd been writing a lot of briefs and they are legal writing, sort of the anti-creative writing. So in NaNoWriMo, you know, I learned to stick with something, to work through problems, to work through sort of the funk, the like funky middles of things. <laughs> Cause you know, how the middle can just be like, okay, well, what happens now? I learned to trust the process and know that the people in the stories have lives that deserve to be rendered in a really full way. The wonderful thing about short fiction is that you get to write these really small vignettes of somebody's life, but it's so incredible to just watch people's lives unfold over, you know, the course of, you know, 60, 80, hundred thousand words. But it also taught me that, you know, that can be very hard. It taught me to have discipline about my writing practice. It taught me, you know, so many things that, you know, I then went into, you know, sort of fine tuning my process and figuring out what the best ways were for, you know, writing longer fiction going forward. Well, Jamila, New Jessup is really like a character in Moonrise over New Jessup. And so could you tell us more about the choices that you made in creating it and then tell us more about how it affects your main character, Alice, and what kind of freedom it gives her? Sure. So New Jessup is actually based on the almost 1,200 Black towns and settlements that really existed in this country. So I had a choice to make whether I would I chose a place like Eatonville or Hobson City that were municipalities, places that could have been a single city block, or I could have used New Jessup as sort of created this sort of composite version of the black towns and settlements. And so that's what I did, but I took a lot of inspiration from places that ran the gamut in size that had, you know, different numbers, not only of people, but different resources available, different, you know, types of buildings available and different climates and all these different things. My people are Alabama. You know, I always say my people have been in Alabama since before Alabama was Alabama. So it was really important to me to pay homage to my history, to my ancestors and elders. And so there was also a lot of just feeling like home, the flowers and the air and the sun, the blue skies just hits different down there. And so it was really, um, at the end of the day, a way for me to bring all these really incredible spaces into fiction in a way that, you know, I hadn't really had an opportunity to see. And then, of course, Alice, who comes from a more rural area of um, Alabama, who didn't know that a place like New Jessup actually existed. You know, I love reading the beginning of the book because it allows us to experience New Jessup in real time with her because she's experiencing it for, in real time. And then we get to watch her throughout the book grow into the woman who becomes the moonrise over New Jessup because she's, she's um, come into this place where she feels the different sunshine. She experiences a different air. She has just a different sense of, of freedom in the way the world works because she's found this place. Well, thank you, Jamila. That's a perfect segue to my next question. I thought it was really interesting because I read that you said, this story began with getting to the bottom of Alice's smile and that you had to interrogate a million questions to truly understand the spice behind her smile, as you put it. And I thought that was such a, you know, interesting entry point to a character and an interesting way to kind of uh, both, you know, probe 
and explore a character and build a character. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about the, those million questions you asked to get to the bottom of her smile and uh, yeah, how it helped you characterize her. So, you know, Alice is a composite of all the women in my family, these incredible Alabama women. And they all have this same sort of smile at the end of the day where they sort of hide things, but there are different things that they also very much communicate, like, don't try me. Don't tell your mama I just gave you an extra piece of candy. Like there, those smiles can say a million different things. But when I first sat down to start New Jessup, it was really a short story and it was just going to be a bunch of like the family sort of sitting around the dining room table. And Alice was the one who was holding the turkey. And I remember just having this vision of her smile. And, you know, I came up in a family that very much loves Alabama to this day. And so when we talk about Alabama in this sort of macro way, it's often everything that's wrong with it, particularly as it relates to black people. But A, this was a family that I always knew was going to be at home in Alabama celebrating a holiday together. That was a non-negotiable for me, even when it was a short story. When I saw her smile and I know those women, I knew that the stories that my family told me about coming up in Alabama and the loving ways that we built community, the difficulties that we had, the love that we had and everything in between, I knew so much was caught up behind her smile. And so I started to ask questions. You know, they always, my family always says, we had our own, we built our own, we did all these things. And I started to ask questions. I started to research. I started to talk to even more elders who weren't in my family, who are, but who are my sort of kin by skin. Talk to them to really figure out what it meant to do all of that. Because without knowing all that, I would never be able to get behind her smile, never be able to see what's going on in her head. And it just opened up this entire world for this woman who otherwise we don't get to meet in history. Because she wasn't Raymond, right? She wasn't the one out front handing out pamphlets, trying to trying to get um, people to support his cause. She was Alice who was fixing the turkey and supporting people from behind. So, you know, there was a lot of research going into finding out what was behind people's smiles. But I guarantee you that if I ask my Aunt Clara today, she still won't tell me. <laughs> I have to guess or research or something else. <laughs> That's such a beautiful and nuanced answer. Thank you. And it, it does kind of segue into the next question that we had, which is about uh, something you said, which is that, uh, well, I'm going to quote your words because you said, my book is a love letter to the elders and ancestors who for generations strove to make a way out of no way uh, for themselves and the future generations. A big part of that love story is your use of language, which you said reflects our history, our culture, our trophies, our scars, our dopeness. So could you tell us more about how Ellis's words are the history of her? Thank you for asking that question, because I really love this question. You know, there's so much that's tied up in our language and the way that we speak to each other. And even like with that smile, the ways that we communicate with one another that are not verbal. But when we, you know, mix it up and we're just with our folks and we're relaxed, it's an opportunity for her to really be herself. I remember I was having a conversation about this very topic and somebody was asking me why I didn't elevate, quote unquote, her language, Alice's language. 
I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not somebody who's easily offended, but what I did think was by demanding that Alice or anybody quote, elevate language to a standard that the reader wants to hear, we strip Alice of the ability to really use language and do language as Toni Morrison said in her own way. So when she's telling her life story, because this is her telling her life story, we're saying you can do that, but you can only do that in a way that we find acceptable. But when she's talking to her family, when she's in community with her family, I envision this story being told like at the end of the pig roast, when it's just like a few people sitting around and somebody says, hey, Alex, you know, why don't you go on and tell us the story of how you came to New Jessup again? She's going to use the language that's most appropriate to her, that's most natural to her, and requiring her to change that changes the whole aesthetic of her story, and it really minimizes and threatens to erase her. So without the language, there is no Alice, there's no new Jessup, and I think we should honor and respect that. Our characters, the people in our stories, don't always look and act like we want them to act, but... You know, if we get out of the way and just tell, let them tell their story, we get so much more from it. That's a great frame for the question I have, the, the getting out of the way and letting the story uh, speak, I guess. And, you know, I was thinking about it this while I read the book, that one thing that's interesting about historical fiction is the, the, the fiction part, right? It gives you permission to interpret history or reality. And I was thinking of it as enhancing truth. And I think that like getting out of the way and letting the character in the world speak is that that's what I mean by enhancing truth, I guess. And, and, you know, I know, I know that you're not a historian, so there probably, you know, wasn't a, a temptation to write this as, as history, but I'm just kind of curious about how you thought of fiction as a way to better tell this bigger truth. You know, I think with historical fiction, we do have to be pretty careful about the ways that we render it on the page because I think that there is a danger of playing around too much with it and then it becomes historical distortion propaganda. And so that's a very fine line to walk, you know, and I, I have, you know, had this conversation with several of my friends and we've had sort of sometimes little heated debates about what it means to write historical fiction but in writing the story, as I said, I had an opportunity. I've had I've been very blessed to have elders and ancestors um, who not only wanted to like do for us, but who wanted to preserve the story of how we got where we are. And so for me, I felt very beholden to being honest and true to that, because in that truth, there is so much. And by sort of going outside the boundaries of what history really presents us, I think it it um, it really erases the true dopeness of what is inside of us. And so for me, I think that historical fiction is a great vehicle to interrogate the history, right? It's a way for us to, you know, if we're doing research or if we're, you know, like I would have conversations with Alice on the page it's a way for us to explore those truths instead of trying to shape and manipulate the truth. Because I got so much deeper into that because 
I knew those people than I ever could have gotten if I just sort of started to make things up or say, well, you know, I know that this happened or this was in this time period, but what if we just, what if we just, you know, fudged around with it? You know, I just, I find that that makes for some shallow writing to me when there's so much more in the world that we can get out of it if we just pay attention to what really happened. Well, there's historical research, and then there's another type of research, right, which is soul research. And you've talked about this intersection of past, present, and future in other interviews. So did you do other types of research than direct historical research? Or maybe you can talk more about how you channeled those characters historically. You've talked about it a little bit, but maybe more directly. Sure. So, I mean, it could be anything from talking. I Let me tell you, I shelled a lot of peas. I snapped a lot of beans. (laughs) I cleaned some shrimp, you know, because there's a rhythm to storytelling. And I, you know, one thing I hope that people see in Alice's story is a rhythm, but that rhythm comes a lot of times from working or doing something together that's, you know, layered and textural. But I also had the opportunity then with those elders, they would say, well, you know, I have all this stuff in my attic. If you want to go through and look at it, I haven't been up there in 20, 30 years. And it could be like a newspaper clipping or something. And so you end up either not finding the clipping because it's just misplaced or you end up not finding or you end up finding it, but it's totally destroyed. But in that process of like, these are like archives. So I know people talk about, well, I went to the archives and they're talking about like the Library of Congress, right? I'm talking about archives that revealed so much truth and so much history just because I was snapping beans on somebody's porch and then a memory came to them of something that happened 50 years ago. And maybe the, maybe the quote evidence exists, but they are that sort of living archive. So I had a lot of opportunities then to take that in and explore and interrogate for me what it meant, because there's a thing about storytelling, really good storytellers draw you into that time. There were t- there was about a year where I didn't listen to any contemporary music. And it's all because I was listening to the music of my elders because they had these very specific memories of a song or an artist from their time period. So don't ask me about contemporary music. I don't know. <laughs> like I'm just getting my feet back into it. But, you know, it's all of these different connections to their lives that take place in these ways that you just... You don't know until you know, and then sitting down and exploring that and living it in different ways like that. I mean, I love hearing you talk about your process because it keeps reminding me of method actors, Yeah, you know, the snapping of the peas, the getting in the rhythm, the not listening to contemporary music for a year. And I can tell you very thoughtfully probed the, the story. And in closing, this kind of relates to my next question, actually, um, because I, I like what you've said about community and the role it's played in your life. And, and you said in another interview, community is a space for safety, encouragement, grief, and growth. We may be tested, bumped, and bruised along the way, but it is a place where, like Mandela said, we never lose. We either win or we learn. And so I'm curious if you can, you can talk more about the role that community plays in your writing life. Uh, but also, you know, I mean, you already talked again about how you explored community in the novel. But uh, yeah, that was what I was wanting to hear about as well. So I have, as I will always say, I have an incredible family and an incredible family structure, which includes play aunties, cousins, you know, all these different people that are just in my life. The writing community 
So when I wrote New Justice, I was practicing law. I didn't have a writing community. I didn't know anything about workshopping. I didn't know anything about, you know, I had written some short stories in my spare time, but I didn't know about writing community. And in some ways, I think that I needed to do New Jessup, write New Jessup in a very personal way. My first readers were my family and that was it, right? My family and a couple of close friends and that was it. But as I, after I submitted it for the Bellwether and I started to sign up for these different like workshops, I signed up for LeMay's and Baldwin. I signed up for the Yale Writers Workshop and a couple of other workshops. And I started to understand writing community, that there is a writing community, first of all. And second of all, sort of see like the power of it, the encouragement. And I thought, well, you know, community to me is people encouraging and helping you to grow. And so why not try with these folks? And as, you know, my publishing life has has grown, I have been so blessed to have a writing community grow up around that. So I just, every day I sort of wake up and pinch myself because, you know, now I get to bend somebody's ear and say, you want to read this short story if you're interested. And it's my family. And then it's like a New York Times published writer, right? Or a New York Times like bestselling writer. And so my family, they're not craftsmen, but they'll tell me if like I'm getting the history wrong. Then, you know, I've just really benefited from finding some really incredible people and learning how to then help other people write their best stories. Because I think this literary community, we owe it to one another to help one another find our best art. So it's just been such an incredible experience. I'm so grateful and grateful to y'all for inviting me here today. I'm grateful that you created NaNoWriMo because I can say unequivocally, I would not be here today, but for NaNoWriMo. Oh, that's so nice, Jamila. I'm so glad. And I can tell you give a lot back to the community just by following you on Instagram. It's been really fun this last month. So thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Well, and Jamila, good luck on this Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. We'll be rooting for you. And I know our listeners will be too. Thank you so much. I appreciate this, Al, so much. Thank you for taking the time. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. This week's book trend is about categorizing fiction book. And I I chose this trend in part because we're talking about the synergy between fiction and memoir, but also because book publishing is obsessed with categorization. But The the Guardian uh, published a piece in November, and that was uh, very well read, many comments. And the piece suggests that categorization says little about how writers write or readers read. And so I was curious, uh, Brooke, from your, your standpoint as a publisher, can you tell us about categorization? What does this word mean? Yeah, I mean, I read that article with great interest as well, uh, because the industry is indeed obsessed with categories. Uh, What does categorization mean? It really is this effort of book publishers to put books into particular genres. And the idea behind that is much to do with saleability and discoverability. Uh, But categories themselves do have a ripple effect because it also makes writers who want to get published feel like they need to be category obsessed. And meanwhile, I truly feel readers don't care. I mean, a reader may 
specifically be looking for a genre. Let's say they're looking for sci-fi, for instance, or they know they love romance. But when it comes to like memoir or more general fiction, I don't know anyone who's like, oh, I'm looking for a literary memoir, you know, nor do they pick out their next book because they can't wait to get their hands on a great mass market book, right? These are the kinds of categorizations that publishing is thinking about. It's a construction of the industry, basically, that is solely based on the fact that there are buyers for different categories. And so publishers do need to label the books in order to be sold into stores and retailers. And so I remember at Seal Press, like we would sometimes manipulate our categories so that a given book would go to a particular buyer who we knew liked our press and therefore would be likely to take a bigger buy. But that was really more back in the day when Borders and Barnes and Noble had so much more power than they do today. And now it's really the online retailers and especially Amazon, you know, who are taking those massive buys. So I actually think that keywords uh, rather than categories have more impact today, um, you know, in terms of helping with discoverability. But we're kind of locked into this category system. And I have to say, it's a little bit crazy making. Well, my favorite quote in the article is the urge to categorize has had a deadening effect, reinforcing hierarchies that rely on an idea of what is serious and what is not. And by the genuinely liberating understanding of literature in all its forms as a playful, thoughtful, experimental tussle with words and ideas. And this reminded me of when we had uh, Christina Baker Klein on the show, and she really bristled at the idea of her work being categorized as historical fiction. She made the very valid point that it, you know, it felt like a slight. And she suggested that many male writers have written books set in the past and have not been, you know, relegated to being called historical fiction writers. So there's also an inconsistency to categorization and to this point of, of reinforcing hierarchies, it's it's very problematic that there is women's fiction and African-American literature and all kinds of other subgenres, but this doesn't apply to male writers. You know, there's no men's fiction, for instance. So in this way, you know, it seems pretty clear that the categorization system, like so many systems that, you know, center the dominant culture, you know, needs to be reexamined. Yeah, I so agree with all of that, Grant, of course. And um, I wrote about categories in my last book, actually, right on sisters. I was talking about a different problem, which is the fact that it tries to make authors stay in a certain lane. So at my press, for instance, uh, She Writes Press, we have a lot of authors who cross genres. So you might have someone who's written historical fiction, but that has elements of romance and elements of mystery. Well, the publishing industry will not let you have a historical fiction mystery romance because those are three separate lanes. But in our human minds, we can absolutely read and consume and love a historical fiction mystery romance book. And those are not three different lanes to a reader. Uh, so it's, you know, it's just an interesting thing to look at, like a story that has romance and history that's set in the past. Anyone can get on board with that, right? So I read The Guardian piece just nodding along. And I loved this line, genre is a confining madness. It made me laugh because it really <laughs> is that's funny uh yeah i think the sad thing is that we are locked into these systems which are you know in the end it's it's about marketing it's about selling books and providing pathways to for readers to find those books but there's no reason as you said that a sci-fi or ya book can't be literary fiction for example the way i like to think about it as a writer is that we so often read and write just for the love of story not for where the story is categorized and i, I hope that is the case with with all of our listeners you know just focus on the truth of the story you want to write 
great. And thinking about categories can come on down the road when you're actually selling that story. So with that, I'm going to say goodbye to everybody. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week to talk about all the things that go into writing that truth, the truth of your story. So thanks again for listening. Please leave uh, comments or, or, or ratings on the platforms that you listen to us on. We appreciate that very much. And we'll see you next week. 